You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Apparently, I'm going through puberty. Congratulations, me. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. It's a victory Monday. This is just what happens. When you hit a victory Monday, you never know how things are going to go. I know that I'm being insufferable. But what I also know is that it is time on Monday nights to get us ready for Monday Night Football. The Monday Night Football preview is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's get the insights on everything we need to know about the Rams from ESPN Rams reporter Sarah Barshop joining us now. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for the time. Allen Robinson hasn't necessarily gotten into a groove yet. What's your assessment of the offense overall, and what does he need to do to get acclimated? I think right now the Rams are really missing having three receivers. Now we saw what the offense looked like last year, and we saw what they could have been when they were playing that 11 personnel. And I think they're really missing not having Van Jefferson out there. Now I didn't expect this. I really thought Allen Robinson would be a really solid number two receiver for the Rams and for Matthew Stafford, especially in the end zone. I thought they really were going to take advantage of that. And we saw that a lot during training camp and practice, and we haven't seen that this far, thus far. And so I think this will be a good test tonight to really say, okay, McVay says that they don't really know their offensive identity yet. Is this a step in the right direction? Does Allen Robinson have enough, you know, a good game and look like that number two receiver across from Cooper Cup? There's a lot of conversation last year about Matthew Stafford and a presumption sort of based on end results that his play had significantly changed late in the season, particularly in the postseason. And if you actually dug deep, he still threw a number of picks, including two in the Super Bowl. There were still a lot of the same issues with his play. They just were sort of covered up by the rest of the team being fantastic. As you look at the way they're adjusting to the roster for this season and you look at his play through the first couple games, what have you seen from Matthew Stafford? No, I think you're absolutely right. You look at, you know, when he threw five interceptions for the first two games, I think the context that was kind of missing was, yeah, he did this last year too. He, you know, he had thrown at least two interceptions in five straight regular season games after week two. And so I just think that this is kind of his game. Now, obviously, statistically, last season looks a lot different from this season, at least so far. Um, they really haven't had much success you know with explosive plays and we've asked him about that and he said you know I don't really care if, if, if the way we win games is by just taking those shorter passes then that's how we win games but I do think if this is a team that in an offense that is going to have success deep into the postseason I think they need to get some of that explosive play back all right Sarah the NFC championship or the NFC playoffs that's a big yeah but uh, but, yeah, but other than that game, uh, Shanahan has done really well against the Rams. What has been that secret in your mind that's been able to sort of stifle the Rams, and how will it play into tonight's game? I think it's the defense. And you look at, I mean, just this season specifically, you look at the Rams' running game has not had much success. I think they're averaging 72.3 yards per game, which is fourth in the NFL, first, fourth worst. Um, and you look at this. Ram, this 49ers run defense and they rank at the top of the league in DVOA, you know, football outsiders DVOA. And I just think that's going to be a really tough test tonight. Um, we saw a spark from Cam Akers. That's what Sean McVay said in week three. And I'll be curious to see if they have any improvement on the ground this week or if it goes back to, okay, the 49ers are going to dominate in that aspect. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain. Jason Fitz, we're talking to Sarah Barshop, ESPN Rams reporter. You can follow her at Sarah Barshop. Defensively, what have you seen so far, and does it feel like this is a team that 
on that side of the ball can potentially make up for some of the growing pains on the offensive side with new new members? I think so when healthy. Now, of course, that's, I would say, the case for, for most teams. Obviously, injuries hurt. But I think if you look at the secondary, they've really had to deal with a lot of moving pieces. Now, of course, Jalen Ramsey is healthy, which is the most important thing. But he's been playing with a rotating cast of characters. And I just think they've had some success there. But when you look for when you're playing a team with a quarterback who has a lot of success deep down the field with some of those explosive plays, I don't know how much the secondary is going to be hold up able to hold up. Now these are injuries that are I don't know that are long term, and they'll get some of these guys back later this season. But I think they're so solid, and you know with these star players in all three levels in the defense, but I think the secondary could be an area where they get caught, especially while these guys are injured. Again, follow her on Twitter at Sarah Barshop. Sarah, enjoy the game. Thank you so much for the time tonight. We appreciate it. Of course. Great to be on with you guys. All right. Let's get the other side of this now from ESPN 49ers. Mm, try all that again. Let's get the other side of this now from ESPN 49ers reporter Nick Wagner joining us. Follow him on Twitter at and Wagner, Nick, I've been trying to figure out what happened last week. I just can't. Now that we've had a few days to look back at Jimmy G and the offense last week, what went so terribly wrong? Um, well, I, you know, it's interesting because I think there's a number of reasons that led to the offense playing as poorly as it did. And first of all, I think you, you have to remove the defense from the equation. The 49ers defense has been playing at an elite level and did last week um, and maybe just ran out of gas for one drive near the end of that game. But offensively, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo had maybe the most unusual offseason in NFL history. Um, (laughs) And, you know, part of that involved a shoulder surgery, which there's a health element that factors in there. But all the other things, of course, that took place and led to him starting again, he only had one week uh, of practice time. And I know people can argue that, hey, you know, he's been there for five and a half years and shouldn't it be like riding a bike and getting back in there and doing it? And, yeah, there's an element of that, too. But uh, when you haven't had that time and you have a team around you that's been preparing for a very different type of quarterback uh, to play, um, there's there's some things that go into that. Now, I say all that to, to put this in, in there as well. Was there anything that Jimmy Garoppolo did in that game last week that really surprised you? And I would say the answer is no, because um, when he has struggled in the NFL – uh, the games like that are always the type of games that he has when he struggles, where it's he gives you some good things and he also has a back-breaking mistake or a big turnover and things like that. And, and I think that is what you saw. Uh, the, the hope for the Niners is that he can get back to a level where he doesn't have those, those big mistakes. Um, and the, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle between what he showed in that brief period against the Seahawks um, and then what he showed when he struggled mightily last week against the Broncos. I'm glad you said that, Nick, because people were all up in my menchies when I talked about how he didn't have a camp, didn't have the playbook, didn't get to play, and they were like, he knows the offense. And I was like, it's not the same. Um, But, yeah, Yeah. I'm curious where you think this team rates out or if you think it's too hard to tell because the Bears game was a monsoon, but they still lost to the Bears. They, you know, absolutely trashed the Seahawks, and then they lose to the Broncos. And I think a lot of people after that loss to the Broncos were like, oh, I guess this roster isn't as good as we thought. And whether it's Jimmy or Trey, we shouldn't expect so much. Is that fair after just three games? Uh, You know, I I think it's fair to some extent because I think some of the issues that we're seeing are things that uh, are questions that I had about this team and maybe we even talked about on this show before the season, which is, number one, the offensive line. Um, the interior of the offensive line in particular with three new starters hasn't been great. Um, and that was a concern coming into the season. And now it gets worse because you take their best player, left tackle Trent Williams out of the equation 
for four to six weeks with a high ankle sprain. So that was an issue. The quarterback situation was unsettled. I would say it probably still is. We know who it is. We know who the player is, but we don't know what version of him we're going to get. Defensively, I think they have all the makings of a top three or four defense in the league. I, I have no reason to believe. I know they've played some not so great offenses, and so I expect that maybe they won't have they won't be allowing just three point nine yards of play, which would be record setting. That's probably not going to continue for the year, but they're going to be pretty darn good for most of the way. So I think they're going to be in games. I think they're going to have to find ways to win them, and a lot of that is going to come down to again the quarterback and eliminating that one or two big mistakes and hoping that the other side makes that mistake against a really good defense. So the pieces are still here. I look at the NFC and I still kind of scratch my head other than Philadelphia right now and say, who has set themselves apart that's going to separate themselves from the 49ers? And uh, I don't know who it is necessarily, again, outside of potentially Philly. So, yeah, maybe a little bit too early, but I also put put that needed caveat on there of some of the issues that we've seen were not unexpected, and that should be a concern. So, Nick, other than Jimmy G, who stands out to you as somebody that really needs to step up and have a big game tonight? I mean, I, I think probably the, the easy answer is Debo Samuel, and only because he's the guy who probably can get the ball in his hands the easiest outside of the quarterback, right? Like, they use him in so many different ways, and you can hand it off to him. And he's also been a bit of a Rams killer. He's, he's had some really good, good outings against this team. Last year, when, when the, the Niners were 3-5 and five and their season was kind of dangling in the balance on Monday Night Football, Debo had a monster game. Um, but one big difference this time around is, for, uh, the, the Rams have Bobby Wagner, um, who has been a thorn in the side of this team for, for many, many years, and that was a weakness of the Rams in the past as their inside linebackers. I don't know that I would qualify it as that anymore, but Debo is kind of the obvious answer. I think George Kittle, too, you know, last week was his first week back from that injury that he had, um, so the hope is, is maybe he's knocked off whatever rust and they can get him more involved uh, because their, the weapons are in place. They do at least have their skill position guys right now amidst their many injuries. Uh, but they need those guys to be their A players. Kyle Shanahan says it all the time. The A players have to play at an A level, and that's definitely the case for this team right now. Follow him on Twitter at NWagner. Read him on ESPN.com, ESPN49ers reporter. Nick, appreciate your time as always, my friend. Enjoy the game. You got it, guys. Take care. Don't forget, y'all, for a job you'll love, visit Progressive.com slash careers. That might be the only way Baker Mayfield gets a job. Uh, one of the harshest critiques you've ever heard of his play. You've got to hear. We'll play it for you next in Good Take Hot Take. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Hit us up on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed, at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz. That's how you get in on the fun. In the meantime, we're going to let all of our coworkers get in on the fun. You know what we do every Monday. It's time for some good take, hot take. Boom, hot take, hot take. It's time to rate the takes of the day. Are they good takes? The season is over. <laughs> I mean, one game in. Or hot takes. This is why I called out and said Kirk Cousins is going to be the MVP. It's Good Take, Hot Take on Spain and Fitz. All right, let's have a little Good Take, Hot Take fun. We'll play you some of the best of the best from throughout the course of the day, not the least of which is our buddy Jay Williams. He's on that show with some guy, Jay Will and Max, that you can listen to on the mornings. This is Jay Will's Hot Take about Frank Reich with the Colts. It was after week two that I said I thought Frank Wright was on the hot seat when they got blitzed by the Jags. I know the Jags are a better team, but like I've said, the whole narrative that you hear in Indy the entire offseason was that this team was one quarterback away 
Like, all right, Frank Wright chose Carson Wentz to be that guy. We saw who Carson Wentz was. We still see who he is in the commander uniform. And Matt Ryan was supposed to be that guy. And But granted, you have a little bit of an uptick when you beat the Chiefs. But then when you turn around around with another poor performance again, like this is where we're at with the Colts. What do you think, Sarah? Well, you set it up as a hot take. I think it's a good take. He good. I think this is an underperforming team that found success somehow against the Chiefs, but a loss to the Titans, a loss to the Jags. And again, just like Jay said, this is a team that, you know, the coach stuck his neck out for Carson Wentz. And then all the expectations were that things would be fixed with their new quarterback. And they're not. I just think you can only go so long with a guy because of reputation and name versus results you're actually seeing in the city in which he's currently uh, coaching. Yeah, I think it's a good take also. And, you know, for me, the Colts had a huge opportunity to string something together and really show people that what we thought about them earlier in the season wasn't correct. And, you know, after the win for the Chiefs, I was excited to see what they would come out with. They didn't come out with much. So now all of a sudden, the the win against the Chiefs looks like it's the outlier, and that's not the right situation to be in if you're Frank Reich, especially given the expectations that should be on a talented Colts team. All right, let's go next to this take from Ryan Clark, ESPN NFL analyst on Greeny. If you're trying to evaluate who Justin Fields can be going forward in the future, you can't do that with the team that surrounds him. And it's a sad position to be in. He's in the worst position, not only of every quarterback drafted last year, I think of every quarterback in the entire NFL. Mm, what do you think? I'm, I'm, I, think it's, I think it's a good take. Um, there might there might be a tie, right? Uh, there might be a tie of, uh, you know, Daniel Jones is getting hit every other play and getting pressured on all of it. I, I he wasn't even in the game because of that against the Bears by the end. Um, but I do think that we're seeing Justin Fields put in a position where there, there are not a lot of options in the passing game. He doesn't have weapons to throw to. Um, they're having to do a lot on the ground because of that. So he's not even getting a chance to really open up the playbook and see what he can do. And he's getting pressured a lot. Um, it's probably a multiple tie, but he's up there for sure. Yeah. I, I think it's a good take. I'm with you. I had to he think did. for a second because I wasn't sure, especially like Davis Mills with the Texans, not a lot of weapons. They're not a very right. good football team. Uh, you know, I, I would argue that uh, there's several quarterback positions that are a little bit wonky, but I don't know that there's any that's more difficult than what Justin Fields has to deal with. It's why I don't think they'll necessarily get an answer on Fields this year. So I'll go with good take. One of our MVPs for this segment of Good Take, Hot Take on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio is Dan Orlovsky. At one point last year, we should have just named it the Orlovsky Take. Let's see what he had to say <laughs> on uh, Get Up today about the Packers offense. These young players are coming on. I'm telling everybody, mark these, mark these words, October 3rd. This offense is going to be better by the end of the season than when it was last year with Devontae Adams. Hmm. I think this is a hot take because it's not offering us any metrics by which to decide that. I think Aaron Rodgers can make just anybody's look pretty good. And I think obviously Aaron Jones is a great player. They've got a couple weapons that will succeed. But by what metric will they be more successful? That's a team that's been piling up wins year after year. Um, and they did that last year. I don't know if they can do that the way that they're looking, i.e. nearly losing to the Patriots with the third-string quarterback. 
Yeah, I, I think that's the part of it that makes it a hot take for me. And I don't disagree that the weapons are getting better uh, by any stretch of the imagination. They are getting better. Uh, but this is a team that last year averaged 263 yards per game in the in the passing game alone. Uh, you, you start thinking about – or sorry, total offense uh, overall. You start thinking about what they where they rank. That's a lot of yards to be picking up. I know that everybody believes in these young receivers. I hope they turn out to be great. But I think that's a hot take. Stephen A. on first take had this to say about Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield, you look awful. Just awful. You do not look like a starting quarterback in the National Football League. And your career is in jeopardy mm. because that's how sorry you look. Wow. Uh, is, is an option a rude take? Not nice take. Just like a mean take. Um, Baker Mayfield doesn't look good. He's had 11 passes, I think, batted down so far this season. But Matt Rule hasn't made anyone look remotely capable. Has Matt Rule had no one to work with? Maybe that's it. Or maybe it's a combination of a quarterback who doesn't look all that good in a system who doesn't, which doesn't help him. I thought Baker had some signs of good play last year despite injury. He looks a lot worse here. And I think when we talk hot seat, it's Matt Rule's seat is by far the hottest and for good reason. Yeah, I think right now, and that's what makes this a good take. You're right, Baker Mayfield's career is in jeopardy. Although his, oh his, my his, god, his, it's so it, rude. It's so it, mean. Oh, yeah, it's it's a mean take. <laughs> but you know, let's say this though: his football career, uh, his his uh, TV career is going to be delightful. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have enough time to get you the last take. Uh, we will make sure that you hear it later in the show, though, because the DK Metcalf moment was really <laughs> delightful and spectacular. So uh, a very human moment from DK Metcalf. Uh, but I will quickly say Baker Mayfield is going to be just fine. He's just going to be just fine as a pitch man for companies and hosting game shows wow. and doing TV and whatever else he wow. wants to do. Tune in to an interleague battle tomorrow night as the Astros host the Phillies. Coverage begins 7.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Uh, obviously, today We've got a lot of football we've been getting you caught up on. We will continue that with Monday Night Football. We'll make sure that you know everything going on. But we need to update you on a huge story in the sports world around some disturbing findings in the National Women's Soccer League. We'll do that next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We'll keep you updated on Monday Night Football. Rams are up 3-0 early in that one. But other big news that hit this afternoon, the Sally Yates report, the investigation into toxic workplace culture and coaches and owners around the NWSL. Also tomorrow, truth be told, an E60 looking into those same allegations and revelations in the NWSL is going to debut tomorrow night, 7 p.m. on ESPN and ESPN Plus. Joining us now, director, producer, Jen Carson-Strauss. Jen, thanks so much for the time. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. So early in the doc, you covered the early years of the NWSL and even the leagues that folded and failed before it. How do you think the league's early years eventually might have contributed to the ways abuse became pervasive and speaking out felt like such a risk for players? It's a great question, Sarah. I think that this was something that was really important for us at E60 to bring to our audience, not just the soccer fan, but our general audience too. These issues that we have seen 
break nationally, you know, these, these headlines that have taken over the NWSL. And obviously today with the report from U.S. Soccer, this didn't just begin in 2021. These are things that have been happening for a, a really long time, and it's, the roots of it really do start in the professional soccer leagues that came before the NWSL. The WUSA launched shortly after the success of the 1999 Women's World Cup and, and the U.S. winning that, and it folded within three years. This was a league that seemed like a, a sure deal. And from there, the WPS, uh, Women's Professional Soccer, was the second league to come into the United States. And that's where you really start to see some of the issues with ownership that had questionable judgment in terms of how they treated their players. Uh, it wasn't run like a professional league. There was a sense of fragility um, that players felt. And so when the NWSL eventually does come around, even though U.S. soccer is backing it, there is a feeling amongst players that this can go away at any second. So there's a sense that they aren't able to speak up because, one, they don't have any power over their careers or their livelihood, but also they just want to play the game. And it can be taken away at any second. We've seen that in the two weeks before the NWSL. Jen, what has changed that's made players feel more free to be able to speak about this at this point? I think they just reached a breaking point, to be honest with you. So much had come out in a public way in 2021 with the reporting that was done by Meg Linehan with The Athletic and Molly Hensley-Clancy of The Washington Post. But it just came to a point for players, so many of them had been impacted, um, whether it was from lack of professionalism or actual verbal and emotional abuse or sexual harassment that they finally had this moment where they they realized they needed to come together as a league because if this was the way that women's professional soccer was going to be they didn't even want to be a they, they didn't want to be a part of it anymore and so they finally you know a very in a very brave way stood up and, and began taking some of that power back Jen Carson Strauss, producer of Truth Be Told, the fight for women's professional soccer, which debuts tomorrow on ESPN and ESPN Plus at 7 p.m. With us now here on Spain and Fitz. What surprised you most in your reporting for this? Because like you said, there was some tremendous reporting done by journalists on some of these issues, but you spoke to a whole lot of people. What did you learn or what I guess stood out to you most? That's a great question. There's there's a number of things. I think the one of the things that you know, surprised me in, in some ways. It was just hearing from the players who hadn't spoken about this before, who weren't aware of these things that had been happening um, because it was so normalized. I mean, even players that had played for Paul Riley for years and years, um, they were used to him taking them out for drinks and making inappropriate comments and things that, that crossed the line. But because this behavior had been so normalized for so long, it really was this awakening when the, the big allegations in the news came about in 2021. I think the other thing that surprised me, Sarah, was when we did sit down with, uh, with Sunil Gulati, former president of U.S. Soccer, and we sat down with Lisa Baird, former commissioner of the NWSL, the lack of accountability that was mm-hmm. taken was what really surprised me, and I think it's going to surprise a lot of of our viewers, too. It feels like women's soccer is particularly rife with abuse issues in coaching. 
Is that a recency bias or is that something that you're actually finding uh, as you do all this research? Sorry, repeat that first part one more time. Uh, is there an issue with women's soccer particularly? It feels like abuse issues in coaching seem to be running rampant. Is that actually the case or is that just recency bias because of the number of instances we've heard of it recently? I think that it's true that that is something that has been happening in soccer and it's not just at the professional level. And that's where I think U.S. soccer also has a lot of responsibility here. These coaches, um, a good amount of them, this tracks back to youth soccer. That's where a lot of these behaviors are learned and where it's accepted. And so it doesn't, it's not just at the professional ranks. And also, you know, this isn't just a women's soccer issue. We've seen it in U.S. Uh, USA gymnastics. We've seen it in other sports um, across, you know, women's sports in particular that this is unfortunately more common than we would hope. Jen, after talking to the athletes, reporters, staff that you did for this E60, truth be told, what struck you as the more important actions for the NWSL to take now and going forward in order to change the culture? It seems like they're they're taking some of the right steps. They uh, the, the commissioner, the new commissioner, Jessica Berman, who we did sit down with, she was in part hired because the players actually got to, to interview her as well and be part of that process. The other investigation that's going on right now is the NWSL and NWSLPA joint investigation, and they are really allowing players to be a lot more involved, I think, in that investigation and making, you know, really taking the time necessary to do it the right way and to make sure that, you know, we're not just call, they're not just calling people out for the things that were done wrong, but that they, there's actual change that's going to happen. We've already seen some coaches in the NWSL um, temporarily suspended based off of the findings that they've already learned. So I think that they're taking this really seriously. We obviously have a long ways to go, and none of this is going to change overnight. But I think that they're trying to do the right things, and it's a lot in credit to the players who have been courageous enough to step forward. Jen, what were your biggest takeaways from the Sally Yates report today? Oh, it was a lot. It was a lot. Over 300 pages. Um, I mean, you even you even saw Cindy Parlo-Cone, who we sat down with, but who's also the current president of U.S. Soccer. She is in that report for um, things that happened to her when she was in Portland as the head coach before Paul Riley came in. I think, you know, that was something that it, it somewhat surprised me. Um, but in another way, it didn't just because this has been going on for so long and it has touched uh, so many aspects of women's soccer, not just from the player's side, but from the, the coach's side. Um, you know, the, the, the amount of covering up that has happened that we've seen in Portland and, and other clubs, all of which we had reached out to to be a part of our film and uh, were declined. So I think just the levels that these people went to to protect coaches um, is pretty astounding. And the details of that report, it really, it really holds nothing back. 
truth be told, the fight for women's professional soccer debuts tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN and ESPN+. Plus. Jen Carson Strauss, the producer, you can follow her at Jen Strauss 27 Jen, maybe we'll have you back next week after there's more reaction to Sally Yates and to the doc. Um, thanks so much for the time and really appreciate the reporting on this. Thanks, Jen. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz coming up. We'll update you on Monday Night Football. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. This was on my pregame cassette. I'm showing my age for all of junior, senior high school and all four years of college. Let me clear my throat. Be like Mike, obviously. Van Halen right now. The Roots, you got me. I can oh, remember a like a whole playlist. playlist. Yeah, it was like, do you remember Van Halen right now? Dun, 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 and that music no, and everything. Yeah. Oof, that'll fire you up. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're going to get to some quickies, uh, but we wanted to remind you again, and I think we will try to have Jen back on next week if we can that sally yates report hit it was a hundred and something pages and that e60 is tomorrow we are off tomorrow night uh but we'll get her back to react to the reaction to the e60 and the continued responses to that sally yates report i get the feeling there'll be some pretty significant things coming down the pipe in nwsl and i meant to mention before our interview with her that i am a part owner of the chicago red stars so um, have a vested interest in uh, everything that's going on in this league and certainly have plenty of opinion. So we will uh, be watching that closely tomorrow when it airs, 7 p.m. ESPN and ESPN Plus, Truth Be Told, uh, an E60. And then uh, we'll touch back on everything around that league as it continues to come out. The regular season just ended this past weekend, so they're heading into playoffs with all of this hanging over them, uh, which is interesting to say the very least. Let's get to our final segment of the night, the things we couldn't get to, but we got to squeeze them in. It's Quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Well, we promised you this, and we were going to try to get it into hot takes because it is a steaming hot take. (laughs) Here is DK Metcalf, Seahawks wide receiver, talking about why he was carted off the field. You put a scare in everybody when you got carted off the field. Or nobody was. Did that, was that just, uh, just Yeah, I mean, I was hurting. <laughs> That's it. I had a little tummy ache. Uh, you know, I had to, had to get it taken care of. Was that ballet service you got involved? See, I didn't even ask for that. I was about to, <laughs> I was going to jog off the field myself, and then, you know, Strick was like, we got a cart for you. And I was like, hey, might as well. Is this the longest place to go? Yes, it was. Yeah. So w- when I was on the cart, I was I was thinking like, yeah, it was a, it was a good thing we had the cart on standby. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm I don't even like taking the cart, but in that situation, I, I give myself a pass. <laughs> yeah, he also said that clinch walk wouldn't have made it. Is what he said oh about trying to do the penguin all the way down that tunnel. Instead, he got a ride because that clinch walk wouldn't have made it. Uh, Field Yates pointed out that's the longest travel of any stadium that you have to go yes. to get from the sideline to the bathrooms. Uh, look, I, 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 it's all good. I just want him to come out with a, a Colono Dookie by DK. No. Uh, also, uh, also worth noting, uh, everybody commented with the Paul Pierce screen grab. I mean, it was like <laughs> it was Paul Pierce in an ambulance or in a, a wheelchair off again. All right. Next story. Quickies. Did you see the Phoenix Suns lost their preseason opener to Australia's Adelaide 36ers? 
I was not aware there was a team named the 36ers, uh, but they lost their preseason opener at home 134 to 124. I guess the defense doesn't show up in the preseason. Uh, their last game was a 33-point loss to the Mavs in Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals. First team to lose a preseason game against a non-NBA team since the Thunder in 2016 against Real Madrid. That was against Luka. I don't know what the excuse was this time. Yeah, I mean, look, you got to look at this, and, and you know we've talked a lot about Aiton and what that's going to mean and, and the distractions for this team. I, I just don't know that I think the Suns are going to be very good this year, right? Like, it just doesn't it doesn't it's feel like Phoenix on. is put into a situation to just uh, hunger down and, and focus on basketball. I, I don't love any of this. I, I laughed when I saw the score because it only seems to double down on what I think, which is this is going to be a lost season for the Suns. It's a little early for me to say that, but they are going to have to persevere through quite a lot to keep their focus on basketball. Hot takes right, have no door. consequences, Sarah. We can That's just right. say them. We just, That's right. Let's go. Uh, sometimes, Out of the suns. Sometimes I get the flames behind me on Around the Horn and people think I'm giving a hot take when I'm just being completely accurate. And I was when I said that I didn't think Tony LaRusso was the right hire for a young, <laughs> up-and-coming Chicago White Sox team full of flashy players who just want to flip their bats and get fired up. And he was a don't-play-the-game-with-any-fun kind of manager. There's another bunch of reasons I didn't think it was a fit, and as it turns out, it wasn't. His tenure with the White Sox has ended uh, with a lot of disappointment. He's stepping down because of health concerns, but also acknowledged that he didn't want to be a distraction, and some of the criticisms of a potential return did have an effect on his decision-making. He was out with health concerns and now will not be returning. Um, last game he managed was August 30th. Uh, he had some testing due to a heart issue, stayed out for a while, and he will not return next season. So the search begins for the White Sox. Yeah, and this is actually, you know, first and foremost, you always want everybody to be healthy, no matter what. But uh, I also look at this and say this was a terrible match uh, from the get-go. You're right. You called it from the outset. We've laughed about it on this show for a long time. I think, honestly, the White Sox going in a different direction, no matter how we got here, is actually going to make the White Sox a lot better uh, moving I think forward. It is. So, yeah, I mean, I think know, health is, of course, the priority for him. But, yes, I think right. the team will be in better hands with the manager that's a better fit. Well, and maybe at 78, he, you know, he's at a spot where he wants to worry about his, you know, he needs to worry about his health and then he can worry about life and not worry about necessarily trying to figure out a way to relate to a bunch of players that I don't think he ever really got that connection with. Yeah. All right. Next story. Quickies. Fitz, there were several coaches fired in college football and I wish I had asked you this at the break so you could, you could add them all up, but I wonder how much money was just promised to people getting fired in one weekend. I mean, the buyouts, look. Like, the number of coaches right now that are just getting paid to go away, I love what Ed Orgeron said when he was like, hey, they told me you're going to lose your job, but here's $17.5 million. And he's like, great, where's the box? Uh, Wisconsin filed, fired Paul Christ, and Jim Leonard will step in as the interim coach for the rest of the season. Chris finished 67-26 and 26 in seven seasons. Wisconsin's not very good. Uh, they've come to an agreement today that will give him around $11 million, according to reports, if they pay it up front before February, rather than the full 16.4 that he was uh, owed fired without cause. But I kind of laugh at this only because Paul Christ was an okay football coach mm -hmm. for an okay football team on an okay football program, which is what Wisconsin's going to be year in and year out. So I understand that it wasn't what they wanted this year. And it doesn't necessarily look great. But if you think a new coach is suddenly going to make Wisconsin competitive with Ohio State and Michigan, that's not the world we live in in college football anymore. So uh, that's cool. You want to go back to the well. I just don't know that that always works. 
So we got Scott Frost, Herm Edwards, and then we got Jeff Collins of Georgia Tech. We got Carl Durrell of Colorado. We got Paul Crist. I mean, it's a lot of bigger-named coaches all getting the axe in the first couple weeks of the season. And, and I love that all of these coaches keep – all of these programs, every single time there's a firing, somebody says, well, they're going to go after Deion Sanders because of the right, success he's right. having at Jackson State. Let me be clear. Primetime is not going to any of those small markets. If primetime is going somewhere, it's going to be somewhere where he can be primetime on an even bigger platform. It is not Wisconsin. Like, Deion Sanders is sitting there saying, Georgia Tech seems like the right leap. Like, no, he's going to wait for a huge thing. I also think when you when you have you, you try to balance like when they say they want to get out first in the coaching search, I understand that, or maybe they want the boosters to believe in them again by making sure they're decisive in their action of a coach that's not faring well. But when you're giving away eleven million, sixteen million, seventeen million dollars, I just wonder how the boosters are making up that money just by you promising that they'll get them out of there earlier, especially in situations <laughs> where you wait another week and that money goes down. It's crazy. All right, next story. Quickies. Monday Night Football, going on right now. 49ers up 7-3 over the Rams. A Jeff Wilson 32-yard touchdown round. Uh, Niners have beaten the Rams in the last six regular season matchups. Do you see it going this way, Fitz? Because we did see the Chiefs beat up on the Bucks. They had lost 6-7 of seven to Tampa Bay. We saw, you know, some streaks being broken. Uh, what about tonight? No, I, I just I can't get the stench of what I saw last week offensively <laughs> out of my head from the 49ers. But then again, they're up 7-3. I mean... If, if the 49ers win this game, to me, we need to have a real conversation about reassessing what we expect from the Rams this year because these are the sorts of the games that you need to be able to win. I know the 49ers have had the Rams number, and I know it's a divisional game. I don't care about either of those things. Right now, on this field, these two teams, the Rams are expected to be better. And if they don't win this football game, then we need to talk about whether or not the Rams really belong in the conversation of great teams. I agree with you, but for whatever reason, this Rams team, I give them a lot more time to gel. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.